This is Ash of Voices, I'm JD Gray. This is our third episode in a short series on gene therapy and hearing loss. If you listen to our recent interviews with geneticist Karen Abraham or researchers Tina Stankovich and Jeff Holt, then you already know the promise genetic research holds. From locating the potential for genetic traits in individuals to creating specific treatments aimed at reversing genetic conditions. The study of our genes is providing big opportunities for how clinicians may one day address some forms of hearing loss. And this idea is garnering large amounts of interest. Clinical trials appear to be on the horizon. Many private companies hoping to develop marketable forms of gene therapy are emerging. And just look to the news to read the many headlines on this pioneering approach. But today we hear a slightly different take on the subject. Yes, the promise of gene therapy is immense, but as our next guest points out, so too are the challenges. And while our genes may point us in the direction of potential developments with our future health, they don't guarantee we will experience these issues, and treating one gene doesn't guarantee we won't experience a specific condition. Genes are just one part of the equation, and as our next guest reveals, the way gene therapy is discussed in the media and by the public may be setting unrealistic expectations for this therapy. Audiologist and molecular biologist O'Neill Guthrie is a faculty member at Northern Arizona University. He's here to tell us why gene therapies can be so difficult to create. We spoke in February. I began by welcoming him to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I kind of want to start by asking you if you could give us an overview of gene therapy. When we talk about gene therapy, what is it we're talking about? Gene therapy really is a remarkable innovation. It is essentially the concept that a gene that a person is born with that is mutated or damaged in some way can now be rectified in such a way that it allows the person to regain a function or establish a function that they didn't have before, such as hearing. This is often done through something like an injection. When we're talking about hearing loss, it's presumed those gene therapies would probably go into maybe the cochlea. It seems like right now there is a bit of a gold rush around gene therapy. In doing research for this episode, I came across many private companies that are researching gene therapy. Yeah, I think there are so many genes that are involved in the function and structure of the inner ear that it makes sense that you'll have different parties, companies, labs, researchers, who will identify their favorite gene and pursue it. So yeah, it is a gold rush. You published a webinar recently through ASHA called Gene Therapy, Current Promises and Future Challenges. In that webinar, you say there have been hundreds of genes identified that are associated with various types of hearing loss. Should we be asking when are we going to start seeing gene therapy used to address these forms of hearing loss? I think that's a reasonable question. And as a clinician, I'm interested in that as well. There are several challenges, though, that may preclude use in the clinic in a reasonable amount of time, such as 10 years from now. But nonetheless, it is a reasonable question to ask. You mentioned challenges. What kind of challenges do you see? The first major thing to consider is that gene therapy is based on the conception of genetic determinism. And genetic determinism is this notion that a specific gene 
determines particular phenotypes. And by phenotype, what I mean are biological phenomena that you can measure or observe. So the idea is whatever biological phenomena that you can measure or observe, a particular gene is responsible for that. For instance, our examples of this is when we look in the media or when we look at how we talk sometimes to each other where we might say, oh, this person has the smart gene or this person has an actor gene. What we're doing there, the language that we're using, comes from genetic determinism, the notion that a specific gene determines some complex factor that we're interested in. So gene therapy is built around this notion of genetic determinism. I looked for a few headlines before we spoke. I saw these, uh, nature lover, it may be in your genes, why you drink black coffee, it's in your genes, and an example that linked afternoon naps to genes. There were articles that seemed like for all parts of life, we're talking about hearing loss, but do you see it as being that simple that you have the gene and so you it's time for a nap or you have the gene and you'd like to go for a hike? It's most definitely not that simple. There's a big distance between a gene and any phenotype or behavior that you can measure or observe. There's a large distance between gene and a phenotype. Within that distance, there are several other variables that contribute to any phenotype or any outcome. For instance, there are cells, right? And individual cells and cells as clusters make contributions as well. Beyond the cell, you have tissues, and tissues will make contributions as well. And above a tissue would be an organ, and if you continue, you'd have organ systems and interactions between systems. So there are many other variables that are involved, and it's not a linear relationship between a gene and any complex biological behavior. And even beyond that, genes don't operate in isolation. No gene functions by itself. Genes function in clusters. So there are many genes that come together that facilitate any particular function, but those functions are still tempered by the environment in which the genes find themselves, and they're also influenced by other molecules such as RNAs, proteins, etc. The notion that a specific gene would regulate a particular complex behavior is, is just an oversimplification. This is kind of like saying, if we put a race car's engine in this car, it'll go as fast as a race car. But really, you're going to need different wheels, different, all kinds of different car parts, right? There's aerodynamics involved. There's all kinds of things. Is this kind of similar to what you're saying? That's a very nice example, yes. Can you talk a little bit more about these variables and how they might have an effect on potential gene therapies? Yeah. We can start at the cellular level. Cells tend to respond based on their community or the environment in which they find themselves. Although cells contain genes, the cell's behavior is more complicated than the actual genes that it contains. So cells are making decisions independent of genes that they contain. 
because within a cell you do have proteins and other biomolecules that are changing their properties based on the environment in which they find themselves. You know, cells, cell-cell interactions, tissues, organs, and systems, these are all more fundamental um, mechanisms that ultimately determine behavior, not to mention the environment outside of the body can feed back onto tissues, which feeds back onto cells, which feeds back onto proteins, RNAs, and even DNA. In other words, it's not just a linear system where you go from DNA outwards. It feeds back to the DNA as well. The influence is bidirectional. You mentioned the media earlier, and I feel like when I look up articles about gene therapy, people might say, oh, it's like copy and paste, or you can cut out the gene you want and you can put it where you want it to go. And hey, this might give you the result that you want. Does how we talk about gene therapy influence the public expectation for what these therapies might look like? Yes, because I think what happens is it gives people a false sense of reality. It's not as simple as just cutting out a piece of DNA and replacing it with your favorite DNA or sequence of DNA. And then all of a sudden, the phenomena that you're interested in will appear. It's not that simple. In fact, there's such a thing as genetic compensation. You might be born with a damaged uh, gene, yet the phenotype associated with that gene might be present in you right? Because the other available genes have figured out how to compensate for that lost gene, okay? Uh, Similar situation with you may be born with a a particular gene, yet in your right ear, you have severe hearing loss because of a defect in that gene, but in your left ear, you have no hearing loss or mild hearing loss, That suggests that it's not so simple as, yes, let's just replace the gene. Uh, It suggests that there's more to it than that. And when I say more to it, I mean that, you know, we do have to consider how the remaining genes organize themselves to manage the loss or defect in a particular gene. And we have to consider how RNA, protein, cells, tissues, organs and systems come together to compensate for a particular damaged or lost gene. Although we don't have gene therapy available for hearing loss, gene therapy is available. There are opportunities for gene therapy that have been approved for medical use. It is possible and it does seem like it's on the horizon with all of this interest. It's emerging. Why do you think it's important to acknowledge that it's maybe a little more complicated than some of these articles have made it sound? Uh, It's important because then it provides a realistic expectation. I think there are a lot of things to get excited about when it comes to gene therapy. And indeed, you will find situations where it will work for a particular individual. But we should also understand that it may not work for every individual, even every patient with the same condition. With this in mind, I want to talk a little bit about your research. Can you tell me a little bit about your research and how it might differ from other gene therapy projects? Uh, 
So instead of focusing on a specific gene, what I'm interested in is regulating clusters of genes. So dozens or hundreds of genes facilitate or motivate those genes to do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. And the approach really was taken from the interaction between bacteria and viruses. Bacteria and viruses have been at war for over a million years now. And ordinarily what happens is a virus may invade a bacteria and deliver its viral DNA into the bacteria and then co-op the bacterial's machinery to produce more of that viral DNA. As a result, bacteria has evolved an interesting mechanism called an SOS response. And this is where the bacteria will shut down certain genes, but then amplify other genes to, one, uh, survey the entire bacterial genome to identify all deficits and all foreign DNA. Once those deficits or damaged genes or foreign DNA are identified, it's then removed. And by doing that, it ensures that the bacteria is able to uh, survive. It ensures fitness, really, in the bacterial population. What we've done is first determine whether or not this SOS response could be induced inside the cochlea, in a mammalian system, and we were able to show that. Then the next thing we did was to determine whether this had any functional significance, so whether it would prevent hearing loss, for instance, and we were able to demonstrate that as well. So we still have a lot more work to do on this because we want to fine-tune the way in which we regulate the genes. But even with this strategy, I don't think that this is going to be appropriate for every individual. I see this, just like gene therapy and any other approach, as one of many elements in the armamentarium that a clinician may have. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're, you're definitely welcome. O'Neill Guthrie is an audiologist and a molecular biologist at Northern Arizona University. Watch his webinar. It's called Gene Therapy, Current Promises and Future Challenges. And you can find it in the ASHA store or view it with the ASHA Learning Pass. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more about gene therapy and hearing loss, check the podcast archive. Find two more episodes on gene therapy and hearing loss from earlier this month. You can find all of the episodes of the podcast at on.asha.org slash podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.